This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, The Spectacular Life of Spectacles with Travis Elborough and his new book, Through the Looking Glasses. Acclaimed by The Guardian as one of the country's finest pop culture historians, Travis Elborough has been a freelance writer, author, broadcaster and cultural commentator for nearly two decades. His books include Wish You Were Here, England on Sea, The Long Play Goodbye, a hymn to vinyl records that inspired the BBC4 documentary When Albums Ruled the World, in which he also appeared, and A Walk in the Park, a loving exploration of public parks and green space. He regularly appears on Radio 4 and recently wrote and presented the five-part series The Rise and Fall of the Antique. He's a frequent contributor to The Guardian and Observer, among many other newspapers and magazines. And we're going to be talking about Travis's new book, Through the Looking Glasses, A Spectacular Life of Spectacles. Travis, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. A real pleasure. Tell us what the idea behind this one is. I mean, it's a history of glasses from their earliest creation and even slightly before that. It was inspired partly because I'd gone for my eye test. I've worn glasses since I was about eight or nine. Though intriguingly, my precise memory of exactly when I got my glasses is a little hazy. So I'd had an eye test recently and it had come back to me that I basically needed very focal glasses, but also that there was something possibly at the back of my eyes, which was worrying my optician, that might possibly be glaucoma. So I was sent for tests for that. And uh, fortunately, it, it looks reasonably good, though, as they say, they are keeping an eye on me uh, for this one. But but it just made me think about these things in a way which I've had on my face and on the end of my nose for decades now, how vulnerable and how dependent I am on them, and yet how little I actually knew about them. I mean, there was a, a report done a, a couple of years ago that estimated there are 4 billion adults in the world that wear spectacles. And I think probably like most people who wear glasses, I hadn't really thought that much about where they came from, how they were invented, um, and so that, that just sort of sent me off on a little search to try and get to terms in a way with my spectacles and also how spectacles are represented in the world and in films and in music and so on. Because, I mean, I think most of us who wear glasses are, are aware that they tend to, or historically at least, have tended to have something of a bad press. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, everybody nowadays, although, you know, this has obviously fluctuated in the in the last few decades, but... Everybody's familiar with the idea of the, you know, sort of four-eyed, not need weekly in their glasses. And, and as we'll talk about, you know, later on, everybody also will be familiar with the old uh, Dorothy Parker canard, you know, men don't make passes at women that wear glasses. We'll come back to those things later on. What's fascinating is how always glasses have been looked upon with suspicion. Yes, um, right yeah, from yeah. the very beginning. Tell us something about that. Well, this is it. I mean, it's fascinating in a way that glasses take a relatively long time to to evolve. If you think about how society historically developed things like glass and had thoughts about eyes, and I mean, often wrongly as far as how they work, but you know, there are Egyptian statuary with accurate cataracts kind of depicted in them. Forms of lenses possibly you know date back as far as ancient Mesopotamia. Seneca you know, writes about how you know if you have a a vase full of water, it has a magnifying effect and, and so on. But it's not to the Middle Ages that finally some bright spark, possibly in Pisa 
uniquely comes up with the combination of uh, a ground lens and puts them into a, a frame and they're popped on the nose and so on. But this is it. They're a curious combination, actually, because they're, they're seen as both. On the whole, they're adopted by monkish scholars and the, and the like, because you know, it enables them to carry on illuminating manuscripts and all that sort of stuff. But they're also seen as devious and corrupting in, in some ways. So they, there's an element where the spectacle is... And there's a great American slang term in the 20th century. And actually, P.D. Woodhouse, bizarrely, is apparently the, the first one, not so bizarrely, but the first person who uses it in print, which is cheaters for glasses. But this idea in a way that glasses are against God's will, that, you know, you have your eyes, they're God-given, your sight is what it is, a scepticism about, you know, about glasses, that glasses are allowing you to see more than you should in some way or other, that you're cheating. All of this stuff means that glasses have an association with trickery because the first types of glasses that are developed uh, are developed actually with convex lenses to treat the ageing condition called presbyopia, but also long-sightedness. So in the, what happens in a way is that the first bunch of glasses, which, which we date back to around 1286 in Pisa, though there are rival claims, are to treat long-sighted, so age-related deterioration of, of sight by what's known as presbyopia. And so they're associated with getting old. So, you know, Shakespeare has stuff about, you know, the um, kind of, you know, glasses being of the aged and stuff. And so, so glasses are associated with age. They're associated with scholarliness. So associated with knowledge and bookishness. And there is a kind of saintliness about them as well. So often in, in Renaissance paintings and, and kind of late medieval paintings, people who are enlightened are given glasses, even though they may have died centuries before there. So St. Jerome, for example, who is the translator of the Bible into to Latin, um, who died in about AD 420, I think, is depicted his, you know, retrospectively with glasses by Renaissance painters and stuff. So there's an element where they, you know, they have a, they're considered a sort of some sense of godliness, but there are also tricksters and fools are also given, given glasses. But interestingly, quite early on also, the medical profession is quite down on, on glasses. Glasses seem to emerge from, you know, rough artisans, really. They seem to emerge more from craftsmen than from the medical profession. So there's a book by, um, character called Dr. Bartish, uh, who's a doctor in Dresden in the 16th century. He writes a book about optics and eyes and so on. And he says stuff like, you know, it is better to preserve two eyes than have four. So so even then, you know, in the, you know, 1583, you have this prejudice against glasses within the medical profession, and they're seen as suspicious and corrupting in some way because and, and also there's a I mean later on the German romantic poet and playwright and, and thinker and, and scientist Goethe for example hates meeting people with glasses because he thinks that somehow or other the lenses if, if the eyes are the window to the soul in some respects that these glasses are getting in the way of that he's very down on anyone meeting him in person wearing their glasses so it is an odd strand of prejudice against glasses but at the same time glasses also even from their in the first kind of initiation the first creation in the in the late medieval pages also enjoyed moments of, of fashionability as well and it's interesting you talk about how, you know, the first glasses were for long-sightedness and were for scholars, people that were doing very close work, writing mm. or doing illuminating manuscripts or something. Basically, a, an old equivalent of the reading glasses that you can buy in yes. the news agents yeah. or something nowadays. Yeah. And it's literally centuries before anybody thinks to get around to fundamentally reversing the lens and making yes. yeah, glasses it's 14... for short-sightedness. Yeah, I mean, so the 1450s is the earliest 
known documentation that we have that they treat short-sightedness. And again, this is because just the, the idea that younger people, the, the glasses that would be something that would help younger people, not just the elderly, is something that, that's clearly not an attractive idea. Well, and also, to be honest, you know, it's about literacy as well, is that, um, I mean, I, I, as you know, may know from the book, I, mean, I, I, can make the, I think there's an interesting point, really, with it. Some of the origins of glasses comes from reliquies and yes. uh, using, using ground crystal and so on. And, and Gutenberg, interestingly, is in, is involved in this scheme to develop these mirrors for this pilgrimage of Ashen, but that, that doesn't happen because of the plague. And so he ends up eventually developing movable type using metal and so on. So there's a kind of interesting collision between there, between the, at the moment when printed books and glasses and so all come together, that means more people finally need to be able to look at printed matter. But for the most part, and obviously, you know, the society is fundamentally illiterate. And therefore, uh, there's a strange divide in a way that if you are naturally short-sighted, you might therefore move yourself into professions where you, you know, you'll, you'll become a tailor or something rather that you that you can look closely at things and you can see them and that's fine, and you don't need to see what's so far away. Whereas if you know, if you want to be a hunter or if you want to be, you know, some involved in some out in the field thing, actually being able to see stuff close is, is you know, not necessarily all that vital. Um, for for centuries, um, and it's a thing where you know slowly as society itself industrializes, glasses production itself becomes kind of industrialized, and and there's a, an interesting kind of collision in a way between need and product that that you know runs through the the history of glasses. How it, um, I mean, even you know, even something you know, a bit it's a, somewhat later on, but you know how. The railways, for for example, that people need. There's a great phrase which uh, is used by um, John Browning, who was an optician, who was one of the people and scientists and so on, who wrote a book about eyesight. Anyway, that describes this, and he's very anti people reading books on on trains for, <laughs> for some bizarre reason. But but he has this great phrase which is called Bradshaw blind, which is you know the Bradshaw, which was the great timetable thing. You, there are people who need to consult timetables, and they're now needing to look at newspapers you know while they're commuting this new breed of more mobile people on horse buses and on trains and so on and that you know that coalesces with also you know kind of new mass production of glasses and iron and glass and so on you know so it's an interesting it's a sort of technologically led thing with glasses that how they how they evolve and also it becomes a a much more fashionable thing by the time we move into the, the 20th century where the technology warps it into that one of the uh, sort of Middle Ages ways in which um, short-sightedness might have been a disadvantage would be on the battlefield. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And um, there's this fantastic, I've never seen this before, this helmet that was made for, for Henry VIII, which, in which the fact that it has glasses is yes, almost the yeah, least yeah. remarkable thing about this, this insane helmet. Well, I mean, it looks like something from Yellow Submarine, doesn't it? So it has this, mm. these sort of curly horns on it and these these huge glasses. I mean, it's not sure whether the glasses were on it when Henry owned it. It's a bit, Henry actually did wear glasses later on in, in his life. He actually had tons of, in his effects after he died, uh, which I, there's a catalogue of them, which I'd looked at, he actually had tons of, uh, you know, looking glasses and glasses for books and lenses and seemingly uh, most of them imported from Germany. He imported most of his, his glasses from, from Germany. But he has this, uh, this incredible helmet, which is which is given to him as a present, which has these big, big glasses bolted onto it. And it's possibly that it, the glasses were bolted on when the helmet was inherited or was given to his jester. Again, going on this kind of trickster thing. But even so, 
it's kind of basically the, the fascinating thing about it. Well, fascinating, it's fascinating as an object full stop, but it's basically Leo the Tenth, um, who's the Medici Pope, who is short sighted, who uses a, a glass on a stick in a sense when he goes out hunting, is the person who gives him the title of defender of, of the faith. And in a sense, it's uh, because he's a defender of the Catholic faith. And in a way, Leo is short sighted in two senses in the way that he doesn't realize that Henry is going to, you know, betray the Catholic faith by, you know, leading the Reformation in Britain. But, but yeah, Henry has this absolutely extraordinarily weird helmet and I think it's that thing of also again with Leo the Tenth, it's that thing of how short-sighted people are associated with weediness and so on whereas Leo the Tenth is quite a robust pugnacious character and he goes hunting he's a big big huntsman but he goes hunting with this optical aid with this concave lens on a stick that he uses to kind of spear deer and so on so he's you know almost turning on its head the idea of, of the kind of wheedling short-sighted person and there is there are theories about the medicis and their eyesight and how that how their their possible genetic myopia or though that's again <laughs> in all of these things it's a really disputed thing about how genetic myopia is but i think for the most part people accept a certain degree of genetics is involved but the family's own eyesight might have contributed to their patronage of the arts because they were you know, looking at things very close up and, and so on because of their eyesight and so on and so forth. But it's that thing of the, the metaphors are, are really powerful about this. You know, when we think about short-sighted or long-sighted, you know, short-sighted has, has, always has a kind of pejorative thing um, in metaphorical terms. It means, you know, you haven't thought far enough about stuff. Whereas if you're long-sighted or, you know, you have foresight, then, you, you, you know, you're looking to the future or you're looking far away. So these things, you know, again, they... They're, they're fascinating for how they percolate through thinking about eyesight and spectacles and you know the ver- worth and value of our um, of glasses and our eyesight and so on. <laughs> You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Travis Elborough and we're talking about his new book, Through the Looking Glasses, The Spectacular Life of Spectacles. And Travis, in the first half, we mentioned a few things like glasses on a stick. Mm. And um, it's centuries and centuries. Quizzing glasses, I think. think They later became... (laughs) Quizzing glasses later. It's literally centuries before anybody has the bright idea of putting arms on on glasses yes. to go over your ears which seems like the most the most logical solution yeah i mean it's extraordinary isn't it i mean so basically essentially there's a uh, it's a it's a well again it, <laughs> the fascinating thing about this story of glasses is how disputed who did what when we still don't know exactly who actually invented it in the first place but let's go out go all out for it so edward scarlet an optician of soho in london uh, in about 17 28 or 1730 odd is the person who creates what are known as temple spectacles. They're spectacles with side pieces, which sort of go over the years, but actually they, they're they wig spectacles, actually, for the most part. So they have uh, side pieces that would stick into your wig to hold them in place. But, you know, but he's the person who essentially makes that leap. Um, I mean, there are, are kind of some earlier examples of this. And also there's this fascinating, weird thing that particularly in Spain and China. And in Spain, unusually, glasses in the late 
15th and early, sorry, late 16th and early 17th century, actually become really very fashionable. There are accounts of, you know, women at, at the Spanish court and so on wearing huge glasses whether they needed them or not. But they have this thing of tying the glasses behind their heads using strings and cords. And the, also the Chinese also are very keen on this as well, but it catches on almost nowhere else. So the first spectacle is a, a kind of nose spectacle. So they just popped on the nose. And there are other kind of other weird devices, you know, glasses attached to hats and all this sort of stuff. But it's not until the 1720s and 30s that finally we, we have wigs. And these, these are quite useful, perhaps more accurately. So temp, Temple Spectacles by Edward Scala, which is just, you know, it seems extraordinary, really, that, the, that, that this should, that should take that long before finally, you know, the most obvious thing in a way of how to keep them in place is realised. I want to sort of bring us to the times when glasses start to become something that's a much more, you know, mass market thing and therefore become sure. something that's associated with poor people rather than exclusively rich yeah. people. And actually, like quite early on, there are there are famous high street names, Dolland and Bausch and Long, that yeah. um, are people that are around when glasses start to be um, become sort of popular. Well, they're, and, they're, and they're also both fascinating because in the sense that glasses is um, the optical profession, because in a way it's not, doesn't come really from the medical profession, it comes from an artisanal, <laughs> or, you know, not bread, but, you know, or sourdough or anything. But because it comes from a crafty world, it's often uh, driven by sort of migrants and immigrants. So Dolland, they are, Dolland is a, John Dolland, the original sort of, co-founder of, of Donald, what becomes the company that becomes Donald and Aitchison, uh, a famous firm of British opticians. Their family, they're, they're Huguenots, they're French Huguenots who come to London and init initially work as weavers in Spitalfields, but then he's fascinated by science and then suddenly you know, gets involved with his son, actually, his son Peter, who encourages them to branch out and become spectacle makers. And similarly, Bausch and Loeb are both what are known as 48ers. They are a generation of Germans who, following the failure of various revolutions in Germany in, 19, in, sorry, in 1848, moved to America, bringing their optical know-how there. And they're both, you know, eventually become, in different ways, you know, they're, the uh, Bausch and Loeb become uh, pioneers of quite cheap. They're based in Rochester, upstate New York, and they start you know, using things like vulcanized rubber to create frames with that, so making affordable, cheap frames. America, you know, fascinatingly, often would have to import lots of its optical equipment from Europe, and in, and obviously when it was a colony of Britain, England. Um, and Benjamin Franklin is a, is a fascinating figure in this because he's credited in some respects in collaboration with Dolland, who actually makes the glasses for him of inventing the bifocal. When he's in Philadelphia, he is importing and selling spectacles from, from England through his newspapers and so on. And I wanted to talk about the iconic glasses. Both you and I right now, as we do this, are wearing something that yes, very yeah. obviously has its DNA in the, the sort of original <laughs> NHS glasses frame style. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Leah, let's talk about the, the mass popularity. Well, if popularity I mean, I mean, is the right word, because obviously they were, you know, they were sort of frowned upon as well. But, you know, the, the rise of the, of the classic national health frame. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we, we're wearing, I suppose, what would be normally they would normally refer to as horn rims, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there, so for those of, you know, this is an audio podcast, so you can't see it, but, but you know, but both wearing like heavy black plastic glasses with a, a sort of heavy horn rim thing. I mean, you know, obviously we're making unfair comparisons here, but sort of Michael Caney <laughs> is probably the best way to describe it. I mean, but the, I mean, the, the national health, national health is established in nineteen in nineteen forty eight. There's a sort of precursor to it in a kind of voucher scheme and, and so on, but and in, and various insurance schemes. So some of the same companies that were involved in that were involved in creating the first NHS range of glasses. So Wiseman, uh, Max Wiseman's company, uh, whose works was established in Hackney Wick in London in 1932. And they actually, it's to do with some law that was passed about import duty. So interestingly, Britain has always been really dependent or, or historically was very dependent on German imports for glasses. And actually, when, when the um, on the outbreak of the First World War, uh, there was an, a leading article in the optician, you know, but sort of in a sense saying, you know, well, what a shame this has happened. You know, we have such brothership and so on. So there's so quite a lot of cross currents. Aitchison, who is a Scot who forms on behalf of Donald Aitchison when, when he's a solo artist, again, imports most of his stuff from Germany originally for his suppliers. So there's lots of interaction between Britain and Germany. Um, Weissman is, uh, you know, he actually changes his name during the, the First World War, changes the spelling of it and announces, you know, he's a naturalised citizen and so on. But in 1932, he brings over an entire factory of material and its equipment and also its technicians who later actually would be interned during the Second World War. But Wiseman is one of the, I mean, there are lots of, loads of companies that make what will become the NHS glasses range, but Wiseman is one of the biggest, but their factory is still there in Hackney Wick and they now trade as Savile Row eyewear since since the 1980s. But the, the NHS range, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a kind of Henry Ford set of glasses in a way there's a it settles down to a set of about 10 basic frames and the one that certainly the one that i first had as a as a child is is known as 524 uh which is anyone thinks of a classic pair of national health glasses is probably one they think of which is the squarish glasses that you know morrissey for example you know would be flouncing across um the top of the pop studio wearing or you know john hegley was wearing for a time so these kind of base fairly sort of basic but you know, reasonably well-made glasses the frame that the wiseman's contribution in a sense to the NHS range is the round rolled gold ones which are roughly the the sort of John Lennon style of of glasses and rolled gold was a you know was a a new kind of great material to make glasses from because it's anti-allergenic and so on so Lennon's you know NHS glasses you know become very fashionable later on but they often often would have the tortoiseshell plastic rims on them as as well those are those are, are kind of a classic sort of nhs style which then goes on in savile row after the deregulation of the eye market in the 1980s by margaret thatcher it becomes a you know a big seller and as a relatively expensive type of glasses because actually they're, they're made of you know good material to finish off i want to i want to talk about the the sort of rise of glasses in popular culture in in Hollywood um, obviously you mentioned Michael Caine already thinking right back to the early days of Hollywood and like somebody like Harold Lloyd becoming a star but as I said I, I wanted I raised in the first half that Dorothy Parker aphorism and um, I want to talk about how the wearing of glasses for women changed the acceptability of it changed via Hollywood over the years 
Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, it does and it doesn't. I mean, uh, you, no, you're completely right. I mean, Harold Lloyd is, is fascinating in a way that he actually doesn't need... It, but the glasses are very much part of his... his he actually, the character was called the glasses character. The, he had a kind of a sort of rip-off Charlie Chaplin character called Lonesome Luke that he did before, where Lonesome Luke would wear clothes that were too small for him, whereas Chaplin wore clothes that were too big. And he he stumbled across these pairs of glasses and they became very much, you know, part of his look. And they're, and they're made of plastic, so it's kind of this pivotal moment in a way that he is succeeding in cinema, which is broadcasting, or no, not broadcasting, but, you know, but being screened through the medium of, of cellulite, you know, for, through celluloid, for, through film. And so the, the glasses he's, he wears are almost made of the same material that the films are made of. But he, he's wearing them in a way because suddenly, you know, in a way, glasses have become a bit go-getting. F. Scott Fitzgerald's first novel, This Side of Paradise, describes these college boy characters called the Slickers, who have their hair slicked back and wearing these owl-like zill, is the American term for plastic, lensed, you know, plastic framed glasses and for women it's much more complicated um there's there's a lot of prejudice against there are there are kind of fascinating opticians adverts about you know these glasses are so discreet you can wear them under a veil and no one will know you're wearing there's stuff you know about you know glasses are particularly disfiguring for women and some of this in a way is you know is just misogyny obviously but um but it's to do with the idea of women are to be looked at Paglia the um, sort of feminist cultural critic talks about this idea that you know, women should be looked at um, and not to see, you know, that they're intruding on male and men's business. And Dorothy Parker's quote, you know, from famously from, you know, the early part of the 20th century. And, and for the most part in Hollywood, the representations of women in glasses are, are negative. Miriam, for example, in Strangers on a Train, uh, who, who is murdered? Who is the you know the the victim of the exchange of murders? You know it has these glasses, and the you know the script has you know about how hideous she is because he's, she has these glasses on and so on. And How to Marry a Millionaire, a fantastic Marilyn Monroe comedy. The the jokes running throughout that is you know Marilyn Monroe is short sighted, so she, there's a scene where she doesn't realise that, or it's discussed in the powder room that he doesn't realise her date is wearing wearing an eye patch or something rather because she has taken her glasses off to date him and. and when she tries to leave the powder room, she walks into the door and has to put her glasses on to find the way out, and so on. So, for the whole, for the most part, Hollywood is tends to reinforce the stereotypes against, against women. I mean, now Voyager, for example, um, the great Bette Davies movie, which is actually back in cinemas, I think this week, she plays a spinster who is. You know, there's a kind of extraordinarily long opening sequence where you don't really see her. You see her kind of, there's a, some feet moving on down some stairs and so on. And then suddenly the camera pans back and it's Bette Davis wearing like a hideous dress and some terrible tights and shoes and glasses. Uh, and that becomes... And then, then she sort of is put into the care of a psychiatrist played by Claude Rains who himself actually was blinded in one eye by a uh, gas during the, the First World War, who then, you know, performs this act of transformation. And one of the scenes where she's shoved out of the, the facility, having been cured of her insecurities, Reigns breaks her glasses and sort of shoes her out of the nest, in a way, freed from her myopia. So I think that glasses in Hollywood for women is, for the most part, in the 50s and 60s, so quite negative. It's probably only really until... The 60s and 70s, where glasses start to accrue for women a certain kind of cool, 
Um, I mean, there are obviously early examples of that, but but I mean, someone like Gloria Steinem, for example, wearing her aviator glasses, these big aviator glasses. I mean, she apparently took inspiration from Holly Golightly in the film version of uh, Jimmy Capote's uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's with the big sunglasses. But so her glasses have occasionally have slightly tinted lenses. But but the point is, in a way, that her glasses are not obviously blue stocking glasses; they're aviators, and aviators come from, as the name suggests, aviation. They come from the military. Joe Bryden you know, is often to be seen wearing aviator sunglasses. And they're developed for, you know, for pilot for American pilots actually by Bausch and Loeb. And the fact that she wears these glasses is again one of those interesting adoption of in a sense a male form of clothing. So she doesn't look like a blue stocking, not wearing Thelma from Scooby Doo type glasses. She's not wearing glasses which instantly peg her as but they're authoritative in their own kind of way. And they have a, they have a certain military vibe to them, which means it's powerful and, and interesting. And I think, you know, that's, that, that, I think that in a way, that some of those are the, are the more interesting pivots in when it comes to kind of women and glasses. I mean, Marilyn Monroe looks amazing in her, you know, um, they were called cat's eye glasses there, or harlequin. They're the ones with the slightly pointy sides at the top of them, looking rather like a harlequin's mask. Um, and they're beautiful glasses, and they, drew, and they do draw attention to the eyes, and that was sort of part of the point of them. But they slightly become a bit parodic when you have things like, you know, Dame Edna, Barry Humphreys's adoption of them as a, as a slightly kitsch thing. So I've been talking to Travis Elbrow. We've been talking about his book, Through the Looking Glasses, The Spectacular Life of Spectacles, which is out in the UK from Little Brown. Travis, thanks so much for coming in and telling us about it. My pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.